I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're discussing takeaways from the 2023 PGA Tour season. My guest is Kyle Porter. You've heard him on this podcast and many others before. He is a writer for CBS, a co-host of the First Cut Podcast, and the emailer, I suppose, of the Normal Sport Newsletter. Kyle and I will give some of our big picture thoughts on this year's PGA Tour, but we'll also touch on the Tour Championship, which Victor Hovland won going away. And of course, the captain's picks for the U.S. Ryder Cup team, which will be announced on Tuesday, August 29th. So after this break, you'll hear from me and Kyle Porter. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast is brought to you by Club TFE. This is our membership program. To find out all the information you need about Club TFE, go to thefriday.com slash membership. But one particular part of Club TFE that I want to highlight is access to special member events. We've got an event coming up at the Meadow Club. This is the Maiden Member Guest, we're calling it. It's just for Club TFE members and their guests. And it's going to be held at the Meadow Club, which is a wonderful course in San Francisco. It's Alistair McKenzie's first American design, or at least it's commonly called that. I would like to check that historically. But in any case, it's a, it's an amazing golf course in an incredibly beautiful and peaceful setting. The Maiden member guest is going to be held on Monday, October 30th, and it's going to be 36 holes, a flighted match play tournament, 18 holes of best ball and 18 holes of alternate shot. And again, this is something just for Club TFE members. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, we're going to have more events like this in the future, then go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and consider joining Club TFE. Let's go back to the episode with Kyle Porter. All right, Kyle, before we get to takeaways from the PGA Tour season as a whole, let's talk a little tour championship. Victor Hovland started at 8-under and ended up at 27-under, five strokes ahead of second place. I think I have all those numbers right. Hovland is now the number four player in the world. He won three times this season, and they were all big events. Do you think 2023 has been a decisive step forward in Hovland's career? All I know is that he's T1 on the Tour Championship OWGR page. So I don't, I don't know what that means, but no I I <laughs> look, I think I think that Victor I, I wrote this up to the BMW Championship. I think Victor Hovland has made made the leap this year. And I don't even I Gary, I don't even really think it's necessarily because of what he did in the playoffs. That is sort of the forward facing like the public acknowledging Victor Hovland's crate but for me it was it was what he did in the majors what he did at Augusta the steps that he took at I mean he he was top 20 in all four majors and if you look at uh, one of my favorite stats of the year is aggregate score at the major championships you got to make the cut at all four obviously and Scheffler was first at 18 under and Hovland was second I believe he was 16 under so 
for me, it was, it was, and we can get into like why he was better at the majors, but to me, it was like his play earlier this year sort of solidified to me that he had made the leap. And then we got two obviously great performances in the playoffs to sort of validate, I guess, what he had done earlier in the year. Has the chipping gotten better, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a little... Do you think it's overplayed, that that weakness of his? Because, I mean, his performance at the Masters sort of seemed to confirm this concern about his game because he played so brilliantly early on hitting every green mm-hmm. and then kind of regressed once he hit missed a few greens and and he struggled to get up and down in ways that you know Brooks Kepka and, and John Rom did not really appear to so uh I don't know you know uh, but 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 go on you, you think it might be a little bit exaggerated or or what well I think statistically it's it's unquestionable that it's gotten better Justin Ray had the numbers on like leading into the PGA championship and since the PGA championship so I think it's better but I think the more fascinating part of his game for me that really improved this year is just, and he talked about this, he said it so eloquently after the BMW championship where he talked about it's, it's great to be able to get better at golf without improving your skill set, which I think is such an interesting concept. And for him, it's, it's taking, it's better course management. Right. We always joked about how like he just rips at every flag, no matter where they're at. And that can work in, at resort courses where he won, right. But not in major championship play where he would shoot a 65 and then follow it up with a 74. And so that to me is the area where, and that plays into the chip. You get better at chipping because you don't short side yourself in ridiculous places. And to me, that's the part of his game that changed me. I mean, the chipping has improved that part of it to me improved even more. It's unquantifiable, but that really stood out to me this year. One thing that I'll point to as a remains to be seen about Victor Hovland and his improvement, which I believe, is whether we see him perform really, really well at courses where it's really hard to play well if you don't chip crisply Mm -hmm. off of short grass. Because, you know, he's performed well at the Memorial this year. He performed brilliantly at Olympia Fields. He performed well at Eastlake. These are all courses where there's rough pretty close around yep. the greens. And you can kind of use that little hack it out technique. It's not a it's not a worse technique or a less complex technique or anything like that or less difficult than chipping off of short grass. It's just different. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a different kind of motion. It's a different way of approaching chipping. And so I'd really like to see him next year at Augusta National really show some great form with those chips. This is something that I've heard people say about players who do well at Augusta. They're just those players. When you watch them practice in a short game area, you're like, Oh my God, every single thing is absolutely perfectly crisp off of this short grass. And he'll need to do that at Pinehurst too. If he, if he wants to play well there. And so I don't, maybe this is a kind of built up narrative that, that doesn't really have much of a basis in, Hovland's actual game, but he he himself has spoken to it, and and the struggles off of short grass are uh, you know can be pretty apparent at times with him. So I, I yeah. guess we'll see. I, I think of somebody like a Shane Lowry who finished uh, in the top five at Augusta. When was that? I think it was last year, twenty twenty two, when Scheffler won. Where you think of like magical short game, you you think of somebody you know like him. I I think the other thing with Hovland that. 
is a little bit underrated is there's all these guys that are great ball strikers, 8, 10, 12, 15, whatever, however you want to sort of categorize them. Not all of them like love the moment, you know, and, and Hovland seems to kind of rise to the occasion a little bit. I don't, I don't know if that's always been true, but it certainly seems true right now. I mean, I go back to whistling straights, him and Morikawa shoot a best ball 59 on Sunday. And you're like, that's a, that's a big moment. That's a meaningful moment, you know, and we saw it throughout the playoffs uh, time after time he hit putt after putt after putt. And that's not a, that's not a foregone conclusion that great hitters, great ball strikers, great iron players will want the ball when it's tight late. Not everybody does. And, and you hear players talk about, you know, off the record behind the scenes, guys who do and don't. And I think Hovland is definitely one of those guys that does. He did well in that moment at the PGA championship. Yes, he fell short of Brooks Kepka, who was obviously a little more solid in that moment. But I think that Hovland maybe had some bad luck on the 16th hole there at Oak Hill and just, you know, didn't didn't quite get over the hump. But he did well on Sunday. He yeah. hung in there. That was a that was a really good performance, much better, certainly, than what he did at St. Andrews mm-hmm. um, last year. So there, there's been some progression there. I agree that he's a guy who seems like he's not going to be overwhelmed by a major championship Sunday. And that is that, you know, the funny thing about him doing what he did in the playoffs this year is that it raises more questions about him than it answers. Because now we're going to start talking about when is he going to win a major every single time there's a major. That conversation is officially at a breakneck pace for Victor Hovland, right? This is this is somebody we're going to be talking about every single time. And so I hope for him, for his sake, that he knocks one off next year and gets that done with, right? Well, I think I think the crazy part about that, Garrett, is he's only 25, right? I, yeah, I think right. it's easy with some of these guys like Hovland, like Morikawa, um, Sung JM was one that kind of hit for me during the tour. Sung JM's 25. He's been in five tour championships. That's a, that's, that is crazy. And well, you got to live a lot of life before military service. Well, yeah. And you got to play a lot to get into the, to like he does to, to get into the playoffs, but he's taking advantage of it. And I think, you know, the same thing is true of, of, of Hovland and Morikawa. It's like, man, they've had really good careers and they're only 25 getting into 26. And I, the other thing with Hovland, I was looking up OW. I, I don't know what wins count for anything anymore. Like Xander, had, he, you could talk me into him having five wins. You could talk me into him having 15 wins. I don't know. But if you look at OWGR victories, Hovland's win percentage is, is pretty good. Like he wins at a, about an 8% clip, which is significant because you've played over a hundred OWGR events. It's the same rate that Rory wins at. Now, Rory's done it for 15 years, not four years, you know, which is obviously more impressive. But that's that to me is a is at least a little bit of a signal of kind of what we're going to get over the course of Hovland's career. Hovland's got something different about his swing. I just really like him watching him swing the club. He is sort of simultaneously very under control and very free in the way he strikes the ball, right? The the way he hits his driver, you know, you can see the leverage he's creating, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like he's out of control or going crazy with it. And so 
you know, that's a skill that's going to stick around. It's not just raw power. It's not just timing. This is something that he's going to do time after time after time. And it, so it just seems like he's a solid prospect to have years like this for decades to come, really. Yeah. I mean, uh, Rory was talking about this on Sunday. So it's, I think the word he used is very repeatable, which is, is yeah. sort of what you're getting at there. And I mean, the crazy part with him is he, he was really a top five ball striker in the world since the day he turned pro. I mean, he, I, I was looking it up on Sunday. If you go back and look at his numbers from 2019, the year, like he turned pro at that travelers championship right after the U S open at pebble. And his numbers are like, it was like, he was gaining like two strokes ball striking, which is a joke. I mean, that's like a, that's a crazy, crazy number. It was a shorter period of time. So I don't know if there was, it was a little noisier maybe than you you would want it to be, but he's basically been the same ball striker for five straight. I think of like a ROM where it's, you're just getting the same thing every year. You know, it's year after year after year. And the, the very, there's going to be variance in winning because winning is luck. It's putting, it's things that have a wider variance, but man, the ball striking both on approach play and with the driver is just so consistent. And it's hard to see, like you said, that changing over the next several years. All right, let's get into some general takeaways from the PGA Tour season. I asked you to come up with a few, so why don't we just start with whatever you want to start with? Uh, what's what's one takeaway from this season? Well, I think for me, and I don't know, we can talk about why this was the case. Maybe it's always the case, and I just have a short memory. But I thought the I thought the FedEx Cup playoffs were pretty pretty low energy, and. I don't know if that's just because we put so much energy into the majors this year in light of kind of the new PGA Tour schedule, or I I don't, I'm curious about if you have like sort of a hypothesis behind why that was the case, but I just, other than maybe the back nine on Sunday at, at, uh, at Olympia Fields, I didn't really get, I didn't really feel a ton of juice from from the playoffs this year. Maybe even it seemed like more so than usual. Did you feel it was less juice than usual for the FedEx Cup playoffs, at least in like the recent the past five years or so? I th- I think so. Uh, I don't I don't know. I it's hard to re- it's hard to go back and think about what you were what you were feeling three, two years ago, three years ago, even right. two, two weeks ago, but or I, even I, picking out big moments. Like there was the Cantlay versus Bryson mm-hmm. showdown. That was fun. Of course, Hovland versus Scheffler was, was great at Olympia fields. But as you mentioned, that was maybe the lone real highlight. And then Hovland kind of ran away with the tour championship last year. It was all about kind of the battle with live, you know, Rory was out there, uh, you know, saying "fuck you, Phil" to the to the Netflix cameras and and and, uh, and you know doing the money sign after winning the tour championship. There was a little bit of momentum there. There was kind of a cause there, I guess. But other than that, you know, it's hard to really pick out great moments from the past five years at the during the FedEx Cup playoffs. So I don't know. I mean, what what would be your diagnosis here? Is the, is there is it just because we we spend all of the use up all of the juice in in the 
you know, that early year PGA tour schedule and then the majors and, and we've just got nothing left by the time August comes around. I think that's most of it. And, and maybe this is just a personal thing. Maybe I was just not feeling the playoffs this year. Um, and I, it, it's, I, f- I feel for the tour because they all, everybody there works so hard to like put a ton into all of this. And it's, it almost, this is, I'm taking this too far, but it almost feels like, the Pro Bowl happening after the Super Bowl, right? Where where that's exactly right. Yes. Where you you put like you're you're leading up to the to the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, the whole summer, and then it's like, oh yeah, we have this other thing. We have one more thing that you really need to care a ton about. And it, I, you know, I saw Shane Bacon. I, he might have written this for you for for the Fried Egg, um, talking about just the timing of it. The timing of it just is it's tough and the locales, it was so just hot and miserable. I mean, honestly, like it is an indictment of the FedEx cup playoffs that Scotty Scheffler is saying at the BMW, Hey, I can't wait to get through next week, get through the tour championship. That is not like, and, and I understand like why he's saying it end of the year, whatever. But imagine hearing somebody say that about like the NBA finals or the, you know, majorly like the world series, like you, it just wouldn't happen. It's just such a, and I know those are not apples to apples comparisons, but I almost feel like, and I don't know how you would do this, but to shift the timing to even players championship time or the spring or something, I would, to me, there would just be so much more energy around that. Yeah. Shane did write something to that effect earlier in the year for the fried egg. I think his argument was something like the players championship could be, the ultimate event, right? The the capstone event of the PGA Tour season. And then we're on to major season and that's something different. And there is a kind of logic to that. I'm not sure it would really work yeah. um, or if it would necessarily make things a ton better. But for sure, the FedEx Cup playoffs are kind of a problem right now. And, you know, one thing that was discussed a lot this week was the staggered start format of the Tour Championship. I'm curious what your take on the staggered start is we're five years into it. Is it working? Well, it's hard because it, it it's not, um, is it working from whose perspective? I think is the question because there's, there's a number of different perspectives that you can look at it from. I think from the player's standpoint, it's mostly working. You're, you're rewarding guys that have been sort of the best throughout the year. I think that, you know, the, the funny part here, we were talking about this on on the First Cut podcast over at CBS Sports, is no other sport talks with as much emphasis about, oh, we got to have so-and-so in the mix for the ratings. So essentially, like I think some of the staggered start is you get these top players. Your top players are inevitably going to be at the top leading into the playoffs, your biggest draws, I should say. And so you get them in the mix at the at the tour championship, and it's like the, the NFL never would never say like, well, we get, we have to have you know the Packers and the Cowboys in the mix in the playoffs, and and we're gonna sort of not that not that you're doing it to favor like Scheffler or Rom or whatever, you're just doing it to favor the guys that are the biggest draws. It, it's just such a weird thing that we do in golf sometimes, and I get why we do it. it, it there's just so many masters to serve here that I don't know that you can placate everyone. And in a member-run organization, you're always going to lean toward what the players want, right? And maybe not what's best for the fans. So is it working? It, it, 
in one sense, yes. I just don't know that it's the best overall product or end result for kind of the fan. I keep going back to 2018 and how if we had the staggered start then, Tiger Woods would not have won the Tour Championship. Or there would have been a shadow leaderboard where we all would have said, oh, my God, <laughs> look at this. Yeah. Tiger Tiger Woods won this week. Think about, think whoever about it is, I, I'm not sure who would have won if it had been a staggered start. But you know what I mean? This would have been so cool if we, you know, like that kind of he would have got he would have gotten the OWGR championship, though. So that would have been <laughs> that's the really meaningful thing. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, several people would have celebrated that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I just uh, I, I think that we're missing out on some potential great moments at the tour championship. If we keep going the staggered start route. Now I understand why they're doing it. I understand why it's not match play, but I think that there has to be some sort of better solution here than, you know, making it a net championship. Um, I found it entertaining for the first couple of years just because it was like, Oh, this is kind of a new experiment. This is a new thing. Let's see how these dynamics play out. As a golf nerd, I was like, this is kind of interesting in a way. But now I just, I sort of know how it's going to go. And this year was a good example of where it can be pretty uncompelling, where some of the top guys just didn't have great weeks. And the one who did have a really good week ran away with the thing. And there was a relative minimum of drama instead of a Sunday showdown between Morikawa, Shafle, and Hovland for the last PGA tour tournament of the year, we had Hovland kind of separating himself. And so I, I think that for the sake of this week of the year and the tour championship as a, what should be a great PGA tour event that even just going back to what it was before would probably be an improvement for me. I think. I I would probably disagree. I, I think I like this better than what we had before. What we had before was just again, it was it was not great. It was not a great product for the fan. It was confusing for the fan. You know, my just, just because of the separate winners. Yeah, yeah. So like my dad, I, my dad is just sort of who I use for the just common like wants to watch golf on the weekend type fan, and it's like well. We got Steve Sands breaking down the calculus of Justin Rose winning the FedEx, the $10 million, but Tiger's doing that. You know, it, it's just, it's, again, you're trying to serve so many different masters. I'm curious about, you said something earlier about match play and it not, not working or not being feasible. What, what, what's your reason for that? Well, I think it's the players. I don't think the players want match play for the tour championship because it would be the ultimate random feeling capstone to the PGA tour season. You know, you you can be the number one seed and go up against the guy who's number 30 and you can lose in the first week uh, or the, in the first match, I should say. Yeah. Welcome and, and, to and, the and, playoffs. and then you're out. Right. I know I, that that should be what the playoffs are for the fan. For me, that's absolutely what it should be. I want match play. I like, <laughs> you know, I think that would be amazing. And a really good product and a great way to end the season. I don't think that you're going to get over the hump with the players. Am I wrong about that? Well, I think, and maybe we can transition into talking about this. I think anything is feasible if you have a for-profit entity that is not determined by <laughs> what the, 
you know, what the members of the, of the organization think. And that's where it's, we have to have some, um, inflection point of like, okay, this is what we used to do. I mean, I I talked about this with, it might've been with Andy on shotgun start. Like if you had, if you had NFL quarterbacks determining, you know, who got to come into the league and who didn't like, you would never have, you would never have college draft picks become quarterbacks for like the next, t- you would just create rules that would benefit and, 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 and be favorable to yourself. And that's what we get with the PGA tour. I don't really, to an extent, I care what players think, but in terms of like just the product itself, what players think shouldn't matter in the, the, the way that golf is sort of, packaged in the future so i think match play i mean this is how every other sport does it make it to the playoffs guess what you kind of have an advantage because you're playing a lesser team based on your regular season but you could still lose in the first round you know if you're the warriors if you're the if you're the dodge if you're the braves whoever um lessen the the players that make it like reduce that the, the the match we think of match play on the PGA Tour as sixty four guys because that's the that's the annual event that's way too many guys you get weird matchups there you you get a bunch of randomness you need it to be half that a quarter of that sixteen guys would be awesome right you have this top sixteen guys they're going at it you get some great matchups uh, I think that would be an amazing way to end the PGA Tour season. Yeah, I think Joseph Lamania has suggested something like this, and I love that idea. I'm just a little bit held back by how I've seen the PGA Tour work in recent history, which is that the players have a big say. Yeah, I don't think the players would love that format, and so I don't think it would happen. But as you say, maybe things are changing coming up soon here. And I'm actually going to table that discussion with the framework agreement and the Saudi Arabian PIF for a bit here in the pod one of my takeaways, my first takeaway, is related to this question of the overall schedule that you started with. And that is that the PGA Tour schedule from the Tournament of Champions at Kapalua in early January to the Masters is amazing. Mm-hmm. It is so good. Every year that it happens, I think, why is it that I get sick of golf in, in August? This is amazing. I love golf. I love the PGA Tour. When they're playing Riviera, when they're going to Bay Hill, when they're just doing that sequence of tournaments on the West Coast and in Florida, leading up to the Players' Championship and then the Masters, it's just wonderful. It's so good. And then it really drops off for the PGA Tour. Then we have the Majors. And the Majors are going to be the focus. The PGA Tour schedule during the summer is always going to be stop and start and a little bit hodgepodge a little bit hard to get invested in as a coherent product. And then we have the playoffs, which as we said, are just not working, (laughs) you know, in terms of developing some interest among fans. But that first part of the schedule is is so great. And I, I just keep thinking that this move that the PGA tour made to group all the majors together, to get them happening on an every month basis in one part of the year so that they could have the FedEx Cup playoffs at a particular time has really presented a an unsolvable problem with the cadence of their schedule, where they have a an amazing first couple of months of the year, and then for the rest of the season, 
it's just going to be really hard to make it work. And maybe as a fan, I'm kind of okay with that because those first few months of the year are so fun. But by the time we get to this point, I'm like, I'm ready to move on. I'm, (laughs) I'm, I'm ready for it to be the fall series. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or the Ryder cup. Uh, Yeah. yeah, There you go. That's better. (laughs) I mean, I, 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 I agree with it. It's almost like this. It's almost like the PGA. So, so I think one thing that the, the framework, like the last two years have really illuminated is that people don't understand how many different organizations run professional golf. Right. You know, somebody like, again, my dad didn't, and this is not like many people think this, that the PGA tour runs the PGA championship, different things like that. Yeah. And it's almost like the, the, the PGA tour owns January to March Augusta National owns April, PGA owns May, USGA owns June, and the RNA owns July. But the PGA Tour is still sort of trying, not, they're not trying to own, that's not like an accusation, but they're still trying to kind of um, implement their stuff within all those other months. And I don't, it just is, um, it's really difficult to pay attention to so many different things. And I think that's why we're like the sort of fracturing of attention in the summer months is sort of why we're feeling the way that we are right now at the end of August. And I don't know, I don't have a solution to that because I'm with you. January to March rocks. It is awesome. Phoenix is amazing. You know, Tori, whatever you want to say about the golf course, it's a, it's a, it feels like a big deal. You know, that's a great uh, PGA tour event. Yeah, I, w- I would never want to see them move away from the San Diego Open. That needs to be there for sure. And I, I think Pebble as a as an elevated event will be way better. Like, it, it's just it's really really good, and I don't I don't know what you can even do about the rest of it. I mean, do you have an I like? Or do you have any ideas there? See, that's what I'm that's what I'm talking about. I think it's an unsolvable problem because <laughs> the the majors have such gravity mm-hmm. that they're just going to attract all the attention to themselves in the months when they're happening in you know april in june in july right now in may for the pga championship it's it's got to be all about the majors it can't be about anything else right it can the the best the pga tour can do is have like maybe one event between each of the majors that matters and that people care about but that's tough because you're you're saying, you know, okay, come back to us this yeah. one time in the month and then move on to other things. It's just hard to divide your attention like that. And when you have the majors, they're so big that you can't create a rhythm that includes other PGA Tour events because it's it's so unequal. The the thing that really works about January through March right now is that the events are kind kind of built on each other. Yeah. And a lot of them feel as important as each other. They don't, they're, they're not all as important, but there's a reasonable cadence, a kind of ebb and flow that has a coherence. But during major season, it's just like, we're really high for the masters. And then, and then we have to dip really low to go back to the other events. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. I, th- I think it's a unique pro it's a problem that's unique to golf too, because you don't have in other sports, you don't really have these one-off competitions throughout the year that are far more meaningful than the week after or two weeks after maybe soccer, I guess, if you, if you want to look at, 
like some champions league versus your regular season. And I don't, I don't know that I follow that closely enough to understand, I guess tennis also, uh, but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but that. the tennis majors are so spread out, you know? Yeah. And the tennis majors, it doesn't seem, it seems like they're the complete emphasis. And again, I don't follow tennis closely enough to know this, but it doesn't seem like the regular season of tennis, quote unquote, it really has that much meaning other than to provide context for the majors. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think maybe tennis is not a good model for golf even because <laughs> the the regular events matter so little. Right. And, and we we do want the PGA Tour to matter a little bit more than than regular, you know, the Cincinnati tennis event for the men uh matters right now. So I think in that sense maybe the PGA Tour has done a better job by at least constructing this January through March schedule that that really attracts attention and appeals to fans and, and casuals alike. And, you know, if there's, if there's a way to really emphasize that part of the schedule and make it official in terms of mattering, then that would be a great move for the schedule. And, uh, you know, that's, that's at least one positive here. All right, let's, uh, uh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say real quick, I think it's all, I think it is a playoffs problem though, because I think that you've got such a lead into the player's championship. That's great. Like, that's why, like that, what what you're talking about, it builds on itself. And then you've got, I don't think the PGA tour is necessarily even trying to take attention away from the majors in the summer months, but then you've got this playoffs jammed in on the back end that just doesn't, it doesn't contextually make any sense. And I think that's what leads to the sort of hollow, empty feeling at the end of the year, not just from you and I, but from player. I mean, those guys look kind of miserable at the tour championship and it, I know, I know it's hot. I know it's a long year, but that's a weird thing to 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 be said about your league at the at the end of a season. Yeah, they seem tired, and and they seem tired at Harbortown. John Rahm was tired. Yeah. Scotty Scheffler was tired already. You know, partly because that first part of the year was so great and so packed, and it seemed like nobody had all that much left for the rest of the year, except for you know Victor Hovland, I suppose. Um, and Brian Harmon and Wyndham Clark. All right, so um, let's get to your next takeaway. Yeah, so my second one is a little bit related, and I think with the the new designated, elevated, whatever work signature signature events signature. Yeah, that, that's what it is now. I told you that. Yeah, who knows? Whatever. It's like we're six months on designated events. So with that with that new schedule or with the new format, I think. One thing that one of my takeaways this year, think about how many guys didn't win this year. Jordan Spieth didn't win. Colin Morikawa didn't win. Hadn't won in two years. Uh, Xander sort of won, but not really. Uh, Cantlay did not win. I'm just going off the top of my head. Um, there, there was a I, lot. Roy McIlroy just won once in this calendar year. That that almost feels like a, a no-win season for Yes, him. He just won were, the Scottish Open. There were a lot of guys, and he barely won that. There were a lot of guys that didn't win this year and that's true every year right you get guys that play good golf that don't win but the thing i was thinking about garrett is you're gonna have because all the guys are playing the same events you're gonna get you're gonna have guys that probably win fewer times than when they were say 20 years ago kind of spread out over like across different events so now you're not necessarily gonna have i'm just using an example spieth winning colonial when nobody else is really playing and he's just kind of playing because it's a uh, sort of a hometown event. So I, I think that 
was one of my takeaways of like, guys are just not going to win that often. And we're going to have to sort of adjust to what is a two win season or even a one win season mean compared to five, 10, 15 years ago. That's a great point. You know, when players, when the top players are showing up all at the same time, it is by definition going to be hard for one player to rack up five wins in a season. Now, I think that within the new structure of the PGA Tour that players are going to be encouraged to play some non-signature events, and maybe that's when they'll get those numbers for their resume. You know, John Rahm winning the Mexico Open or something, sure. right? Yeah. Which he which he should do every year. If he goes to the Mexico Open, just you can book it. John Rahm is going to be like first or second place. So I think that there's still going to be some of that. But you're right that a, a strange side effect of the signature concept, getting all the players together at the same time, at the same moment, is, yeah, I mean, a six-win season, a five-win season, how often are we going to see that happen again? Yeah, I mean, I go, okay, so I, I just looked up Justin Thomas's five win 2017 when he won the PGA at Quail Hollow. I was thinking about this too. Yeah, it might be the, is this kind of the last time that this really happened? Uh, so Spieth won five in 2015. I think it is. Uh, I mean, Rory and Rom win three like every year, but right. they're, they're, but neither kinda, of them have gone crazy and done like a VJ Singh or anything. No. And I, I, I kind of, I guess, uh, well, Rom won four this year. I think Scotty won four last year, but yeah, nobody, I don't think anybody's gotten to five since JT. So that year he won, I guess it was that season, not even that year. He won the CIMB in the fall. <laughs> you know, is that even an event that he, would play in the future. He won. Does it, does it exist? How much does it exist at this point? Does it exist? I don't, I don't think it exists. I don't know. I mean, Tigers won like eight, you know, WGC Mexico's, even though he's never played. I I don't know what event is what anymore. (laughs) Uh, so he wins the CIMB classic. He wins tournament of champions. He would, he would play that, uh, if qualified, uh, he won the Sony might not play that. Right. Like, I mean, maybe, but maybe not. And then he won, obviously, the PGA Championship and then the first playoff or the second playoff event that year. So those are events, obviously, that he would play. But the point is, like, if the, if he, if he if the new schedule existed then, he might have only won three or four times and not five. So you're going to have guys in this era that just, you know, win – Think about how much Phil played in his in his career. Like he, Phil's played like six hundred times. You're not gonna you're not gonna see that anymore, I don't think. And so, as a result, you're gonna get guys that win f- fewer than maybe you think they would compared to a Phil or, or or even Tiger over the course of their career. Yeah, I think this is a really good point, and it kind of connects with my second takeaway, which is how fleeting dominant form seems to be on the modern PGA tour and maybe what you're saying about the structure of the events and the amount of times that players are going head to head against each other partly explains this dynamic, but we had John Rom start off the year at basically a historic pace, Yeah, but he really didn't do much after winning the masters by John Rom standards, right? He of course played John Rom golf. He played brilliantly, but not really what we expected out of him when he when he won the Masters. Roy played extraordinarily well at times, 
But as I said before, won only once in this calendar year. His other win in this season was at the first event in the fall, I think. It was at the uh, wasn't at the CJ Cup, maybe. All right. So that's that's Rory's year. That's not really a dominant Rory season that we might expect from him. And then you have Scotty Scheffler striking the ball like prime tiger. <laughs> Absolutely could not putt to save his life. That That's our big three right now. And they had moments of real dominance, but not dominant seasons. Now, I think Hovland would have to do a little bit more in order to be considered in, in their ranks. So right now it's Rom, Roy, and Scheffler, and we see the potential for them to have an absolutely dominant, exciting season, but they just didn't quite do it in 2023, maybe because of some of the scheduling dynamics that you're talking about, and also maybe because of just generally how hard it is to win in today's competitive game, even if you're striking the ball really, really well. Yeah, do you think there's more parody? When did you start covering golf? Like prof- like the PGA Tour golf? Uh, it's a it's a great question. Uh, probably uh, covering it in 2018. So I'm I'm curious about whether you think there's more parity now than like let's say I don't know like like think back to when Luke Donald and Lee Westwood were were number one in like 2010, 11, 12, kind of that era. Do you, do you think that there has become, cause obviously you were paying attention to it, even if you weren't covering it, do you think there's more parody now than in, in kind of that era of 10, 15 years ago? It's so hard to compare eras and that Luke Donald era was weird. You know, <laughs> um, there, there was the, the, the gaping absence of tiger and all these players that you might not expect to fill the void ended up, filling the void um <laughs> the martin keimer era <laughs> the martin keimer <laughs> the guy has two majors um so yeah it's it's tough to say what i would say about today's era and this is just a hypothesis is that it's harder for a rory mcelroy to win as many events as lee trevino did in the 1970s And there are various things behind that. I think that there are more players who are really, really, really good without necessarily being great. I think there are more of those players now than maybe there ever have been. And there are a couple of different causes of that, one of which is maybe TrackMan training, which has enabled a lot of players who would have been merely good to be really, really good. And then equipment where, you know, extraordinary ball strikers are not as unique anymore because a lot of people can be extraordinary golf uh, ball strikers with the current equipment. And so you have a Lucas Glover popping up. I mean, he's a great, he would be a great ball striker with persimmon. So he's not a good example, but you know, for somebody like Rory, somebody like John Rahm, who would be amazing with any equipment it's just a little bit harder for them to get over the hump on a week-to-week basis because so many more guys can get up to their level are able to do that whereas you know this is going way back but when jack nicholas was winning a lot of events when lee trevino was winning a lot of events when tom watson was winning a lot 
they didn't have to do quite as much to get over that hump of the, you know, middling PGA tour player who on a given week could be as great as they were. Yeah. I think a good example of this is a, and this is not a a slight at him because I think he's actually a very good player, but Brian Harmon, right? I, I think, I think one, one, sort of category that I would add to your hypothesis is, and this has been my soapbox for the last five years, is that when you, when in money, when there's an influx of money in any industry, you're going to see increased competition over time. Now, I don't know that you see that increased competition at the very, very top, like the upper crust. I think you see it in the Brian Harmon range where it's like, man, there's a lot of guys like Brian Harmon that in theory could put, could have like all time weeks and win the open championship that guess who that makes life hard on. It makes it hard on John Rom, right. In a way that, that you're, that I agree with you. It wasn't as, it was still hard, but it wasn't as hard on a Lee Trevino or an Arnold Palmer or a Jack Nicholas, because that middle group probably wasn't quite as strong. So I think that's where you see the, I don't know if it's even called parody, but that's where you see guys, it's just more competitive and I think more difficult to win golf tournaments than it's ever been partly for the reasons that you mentioned, but also because when there's more money in an industry, you're going to get a lot more competition and a lot of guys that are trying harder to be better at it. I think that's a much better way to phrase the point that I was trying to make (laughs) for sure. There, there are just more guys who can win on a given week. And so it kind of is like the Brooks, Kepka formula of winning majors where Brooks thinks about how many guys he has to beat and he manages to come up with a formula that makes it so he doesn't have to beat many guys. I think that's partly fooling himself, but it seems to have worked for him mentally. There are just more players that a Rory or a Rom or a Scheffler has to beat on a given week. And I think if you look at Scotty Scheffler's season, it's a great example because he got seconds and thirds so many times, maybe in a past era when there weren't as many players who could get over the hump on a given week, Scheffler would have won four or five times this season when, you know, this year he got second or third those times. And I think that leads into your last takeaway. Actually, I'm, I'm stepping on toes and also revealing that we briefly talked before this podcast started. So I'm breaking a couple of rules here, but I, I think uh, <laughs> you, you have a takeaway about Scotty Scheffler. Let's talk about that. I do. Uh, I, I posted the, these numbers on Twitter today, but I'll, I'll just read them because they're unlike anything I've seen probably since maybe Rory in 2014 or maybe a tiger season, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So Scotty Scheffler finished first in the following categories on the PGA tour this year, strokes gained off the tee, strokes gained approach, strokes gained tee to green, strokes gained overall greens and regulation, scoring average money earned top tens and aggregate score at the major championships, which I mentioned earlier. Unbelievable. That. I mean, honestly, just to see the first two strokes gained off the tee and strokes gained approach, if you're first in both of those, it's, it's honestly, it's kind of difficult to only win twice. And people on Twitter who are super nuanced are like, oh, the putting matters. Of course, putting matters. All I'm saying is the, 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 the sort of outcomes that you're going to get from just that resume 
two wins on it. They were good wins, uh, Phoenix and, and TPC Sawgrass, but to only have two wins on it is a really – I would I would kind of say it's an outlier outcome. Like if you played that season out a hundred more times, I doubt there's very many seasons where you where he only wins twice. So it was just a very unique season to me, and one that I think he'll look back on with kind of some disappointment in the future because he cares very deeply about winning and not very deeply about my tweet. <laughs> uh, and so I think he'll, I think he'll look back and just kind of be bummed out that he didn't win more tournaments. He's got to be really frustrated right now. And I think you've seen signs of that from yeah. Scheffler this season. You've seen him show frustration in ways that he really didn't before. He was kind of more known as a stoic, I guess, but we've seen cracks in that this season. And I think probably the putting performance has something to do with it. It is such a strange thing. I mean, I was looking at that the um PGA Tour website now has this little visual for the strokes gain stats where it's like a circle graph and you see what a player is really good at when the when the dot is kind of far away from the center. And so it creates a little shape that allows you to visualize how well a player is doing in strokes gained putting, strokes gained around the green, strokes gained approach, strokes gained off the tee, etc. And right now, Scotty Scheffler is like maxed out in everything except for putting, which yep. is kind of almost flat against the middle of that graph. And it's just a it's it's a really striking thing to look at. But another way that I might view this is how impressive it is that in spite of not putting well, basically ever, he had the season that he had. Because we know the profile of the great ball striker, shaky putter. Hideki Matsuyama might be the best example of it in this era. But we also have guys like, I don't know, like Charles Howell or Boo Weekly or, you know, guys like that who are extraordinary. Or Kyle Stanley. Great, great ball strikers. Can't putt. These guys aren't getting second and third place. They're racking up top 20s and top 30s. But Scotty Scheffler is so great of a ball striker that he's basically writing that alone, along with his around the green skills, to contending on a week to week basis. That's pretty extraordinary. I'm not sure we've seen something like it before. We've seen the great ball striker who can't putt, but usually yeah. he's farther back in the pack. Yeah, the consistency there is is incredible. And I think it's a little bit we we start you and I started this podcast talking about Victor Hovland and, and sort of the, 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 the way he manages the golf course and the way he handles tournaments. And I think Scheffler's an, an even better version of that. If that's, I mean, that sounds dumb to say about somebody like Victor Hovland, but that's how good Scheffler's been. One thing that goes under the radar, uh, Scheffler finished, I think it was in the top 10 and strokes gained around the green this year. It was in the top 10. And that is, that the crazy part about that is that you can go and Justin Thomas has talked about this before you go to big time events and you have the confidence that you can get up and down from anywhere. It allows you to take, it allows you to hit shots at some tucked pins or some, and Scheffler doesn't do that a lot. He actually plays very conservatively most of the time, but to have that weapon, to sort of cover up any mistakes you might make from t uh, in your ball striking is 
That seems unfair. That's that's the John. Like I think John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler probably have the two most underrated short games in the world, uh, just in terms of we don't talk about them really ever um, for for obvious reasons. But those guys have incredible hands. They can do a ton of different things with the ball around the green, and that's the part for me that really kind of elevates Scotty to being in contention almost every week. All right, my last takeaway opens up a bit of a can of worms that I'm not sure I want to dig too deep into on this (laughs) podcast, but it's got to be mentioned. The framework agreement, the supposed future partnership between the Saudi Arabian PIF and the PGA Tour. There are a lot of possible takeaways here, but I guess where I landed by the end of this year is that non-major competitive golf is not worth as much as what's been spent on it in the last two years. Because the only way that this framework agreement between the PGA Tour and the PIF makes sense for both sides is if both sides don't really like their current financial situation. I think we know that the tour must have seen that it is quickly running out of money between the purses and the lawsuits and all of that. They were in a precarious situation by their standards. I'm sure they still have plenty, but... I don't, I think the financial assessment was a little bit dire by the middle of this year. And then the PIF, you know, obviously it's never going to really run out of money. (laughs) I'm not sure if it can, but this is a really well managed fund. And these guys are not in the habit of throwing away hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions on a concept that's probably never going to work. We're seeing it not work right now. It's basically kind of disappeared from the discourse aside from, you know, those weird sections of Twitter. So I think that if the framework agreement goes through the implicit admission is we've overextended ourselves, put too much money into the sport. And it's in the interest of both sides to consolidate, organize, rein in the spending. And that, that to me is how it would make sense if they both go through with this. Now I, there is the possibility that the PIF backs out and that it has already gotten out of this situation what it wants to get out of it, which is more mainstreaming, you know, Al Ramayan sitting next to Jay Monahan, cleaning the image a little bit. Maybe, maybe that's what they're after. But if they both go through with a partnership, I think they're both saying, we, we've done too much here. This is too much money on this sport, and, and we've got to bring it in a bit. I'm not saying that I like it. I'm not saying I like the partnership. I'm just saying I think that might be the logic. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying certainly makes sense. I think I, I'm curious to know whether that was always the play for for the for the PIF, you know, um, and for Liv. Was that Liv's purpose to just force this partnership? I suppose. Yeah, because I think sometimes the way that people uh, close to Liv or are that are fans of Liv, which is a weird, weird corner to be on, like to be a fan of a, of an organization or a league or whatever, like that's so bizarre to me. Um, if you're a fan, just like if you're, if you're just a fan of like, if you're wearing PGA tour gear, that's odd to me too. I don't get that. Shots fired at Rob Lowe. I'm sorry, (laughs) Rob Lowe. If you're listening to this podcast, Kyle doesn't mean any offense. I know you're a fan of the NFL. (laughs) Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the last two years have been basically the Rob Lowe meme, uh, essentially. <laughs> and so, 
I forgot even what I was saying. <laughs> I'm sorry. I had, I, I had to take it. <laughs> but but the the the, the I, I just am curious about you know what is what yeah what was Liv's pre- like I I don't I don't think I've said this before. I don't believe the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia and Yasser like do they want to be in the in the business of of golf tournament logistics? Right? right, like that's that's a. I I I just don't really believe that that's true. Maybe it is, and maybe there's a path that they see that I I don't I'm not really understanding or getting or whatever. But and so if if that's not like if that's true that they don't really want to be in that business, then the logical outcome is that they sort of overplayed their hand to get something that they did want. And I think that's sort of what you're saying, which I think is from a business perspective, really smart. I, again, I don't necessarily agree with anything that's happened over the last year and a half on a number of different fronts, but it's a, if you, if you just take all the golf and all the, um, uh, like eth- uh, everything ethical out of it, then like, if you're just looking at business and numbers, like it is f- fairly smart to over to, to like overextend yourself and then get, uh, I, I, this is probably the wrong way to say it, but to get bought or absorbed by a, by the kind of preeminent organization in your industry, that's essentially what's happening. And if that's your desired outcome, then the way they've gone about it is actually, I think makes a lot of sense. All right. Let's talk a little bit of Ryder cup before wrapping up. The captain's picks are coming tomorrow. I'm going to try to get this podcast out quickly so that there's a little bit of time that it exists in the world before the captain's picks descend on all of us. Um, So this is, as far as I can see, this is what the lay of the land is for Zach Johnson right now. The automatic qualifiers are Scotty Scheffler, Wyndham Clark, Brian Harmon, Patrick Cantlay, Max Homa, and Xander Schauffele. There are six more spots on the team. The guys who are pretty much locks and whom I don't think we need to discuss, and tell me if I'm wrong, Kyle, are Jordan Spieth, Ricky Fowler, Colin Morikawa. I don't think there's any point in discussing whether those guys are going to be on the team or not because they're on the team. Yep. Fred Couples has also said that Cameron Young is a lock. I believe that Brooks Kepka should also be a sure thing. What do you make of those two? Are they pretty much a sure thing, meaning that we have one more spot to give basically. Yeah. I mean, I, yes, I, I don't think you can afford to not take Kepka to not take a five time major winner in a year in which you want a major would be the PGA championship. No less. Yeah, yeah exactly. Would be sort of negligent. I think um, I actually made the case against Brooks in 2021 at Whistling Straits, but and I said this on the No Line Up podcast last week. I I sort of I give him a lot of credit for the way that he in a, like would just became a really important part of that team and sort of um, he didn't, he didn't do his usual, like Brooks kept your routine. He was truly like part of that team and that takes some humility. And I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And I think he wants to be part of this team. And I think he will be the cam young thing. I think, I think he will be part of this team. I think he's going to be on the team. I think he's going to be a captain's pick. I'm 
I, it feels like he's getting a level of um, like sort of a free pass in the same way that Brooks is, except Brooks is a five-time major winner and Cam Young hasn't won a PGA Tour event. I know. You know, like I, it's I a don't, little strange. It why is. did Fred Couples say that he's a lock? It just I doesn't seem obvious to me that he is. I mean, I think he's probably a good fit for the sure. course. Yeah. But I, yeah, I don't know. That puzzled me too. I thought after the way he played it, though, I think Andy said this on Shotgun Start. After after the way he, Andy said this about twenty five different guys, though too. He said it about uh, he said it about Lucas Glover after. Oh, he's definitely on the Ryder Cup team. Like, well, there's only twelve spots, so we can't take you know seventeen guys. But I thought Cam Young was a lock after the Open Championship, but he just. He, I wanted to see some momentum from him and it's just been start, stop, start, stop for really the last kind of just for 2023, which is a disappointment, but I do think he'll be on the team. All right. So that leaves one spot basically, and we can kind of put an asterisk next to Cam Young's spot saying that we're not sure why he is supposedly a 100% sure thing for the team. But with that one spot left, as far as I can see, the main candidates for it are Justin Thomas, Russell Henley, Keegan Bradley, Sam Burns, and Lucas Glover. Is there anybody else who would be considered? I think you throw Bryson and DJ in there just because of sure. what they did at, at Whistling Straits. And Bryson's been playing very good golf, even at, at the major championships. He's been, he's been solid. So I would throw those two names in that, in that mix. And and Bryson, I think that long irons are going to be really important at Marco Simone. Uh, I think they're, they're going to do some things in the landing zones for long tee shots. And Bryson is a great long iron player and does really well at Bay Hill. Um, and that, that might be a good model for a player on this team. I haven't seen Bryson and DJ come up that much for this spot. And maybe that's because we kind of know that Justin Thomas is going to get it. Mm-hmm. How 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 certain are you? How certain are you at this point that Justin Thomas is going to be the guy? I'm probably more certain than that Cam Young is on the team. So I mean, is there any even any point in discussing it, or do we talk about why Russell Henley should be more in consideration, or Keegan, or Sam Burns, or Lucas? Gla- I mean, should any of these guys really be considered for this spot, or are we okay with it being? Justin Thomas almost more certainly than Cam Young. Well, I mean, of course those guys deserve to be on the team more than Justin Thomas. Justin Thomas, if we're just talking deserve, he does not, he did not automatically qualify. He did not come really super close to being in the top 12. His strokes gain numbers are terrible. His performance this year is bad. There's nothing deserve about Justin Thomas being on the team. He knows that, Zach Johnson knows that. Everybody on the team knows that. The thing I would say about him, and I, t- I, I wrote something about this um, on Twitter earlier today, is you're trying to do something you haven't done in 30 years. And I think what the U.S. has always, like their mindset has always been, we're going to take as much talent as possible and try to out-talent Europe, right? That's not working in, in Europe anyway. And I think what JT brings to the table is something that without him, this team doesn't have. And that is a lightning rod, a captain, like somebody who's going to rally the troops on Sunday when they're down three going into singles 
And that sounds trivial, but it, it's it's just so different than stroke play, PGA Tour events, or even major championships. It's a team. It's one on emotion. And I, I realize all that stuff sounds like I'm just trying to justify a JT pick. If this was, honestly, if this was Morikawa or Scheffler or almost anybody other than, the only three guys I think that this sort of template applies to in this event are Rom. JT and Rory, because they bring something to the table that is intangible. They can't be measured on data golf that, um, you can't find in any of their numbers or any of their results. So that's my case for JT. And I think I've no, since nobody went out and like was obviously the guy, I think I've taught myself into him that he should be the pick for this team. You know, this is where live really throws a wrench in things. Because if Bryson DeChambeau had been on the PGA Tour this year and had won an event or two and had clearly outclassed Justin Thomas in terms of form, which he might have, then this would be a tougher argument. He is, they are, DJ and Bryson, of course, in the same class of player as Justin Thomas. And the problem with Russell Henley, Keegan Bradley, Sam Burns, and Lucas Glover, although all of those players, have shown the ability to play better than Justin Thomas recently. Mm -hmm. They simply aren't in the same stratum of golfer as Justin Thomas is. Justin Thomas won a major in 2022. He just, yeah, he's been bad recently, but I have a hard time saying take Russell Henley. Russell Henley is kind of my guy for this. I'm like, I think he would be good. I think he would do well at this golf course. And he's been great this year. But, but he's Russell Henley, and we're talking about him versus Justin Thomas, and at a certain point, it just starts to feel a little bit ridiculous to say that you should take Russell Henley. Yeah, I listen, preaching to the choir. I, I, I think... I think but, but there are going to be people who are mad at us about this. There are a lot of uh, people who are mad at, or, or like the pro-JT bias. And believe me, I, I would love to be against JT here. I, I, I really don't <laughs> like him that much. I really, he, he rubs me the wrong way in so many ways. He, I do not root for the guy at all, but I, I'm sorry. I, you know, you just can't take Russell Henley or Sam Burns over him. You, I, you just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, people have popped me for like, Oh, you just like JT because he yells a lot and he's, he's loud. And, and, and it's like, no, I, I like him because he galvanizes the team. You know, you go, we, we went, we did this exercise last night on the, or the other day on the first cap podcast where we went down the roster and we said, Hey, is this guy getting the team fired up for Sunday or for Saturday, any, any of the days, uh, Scotty Scheffler? No, Xander Shoffley, No, Patrick Cantlin. You go all the way down and there's nobody there. Who, who's, who's that? Who's like the guy that is, you know, rallying the troops, getting everybody ready to roll. It's it, there's nobody on the roster. Like you lack that guy. And I think that's a, again, the U S has tried to out talent out, whatever out name out a lot of things, Europe in the past in European Ryder cups. And it's not working like put together a team that really cares about each other, that of guys that you want there. It's not, it, it, it just, to me, like, and this is a, this is a unique case. I would not say this about like f- the bottom four spots on the roster. You have to have guys that are playing good golf. 
but I, I just think that in this specific instance, JT makes sense for this team, for this moment, and for this Ryder Cup. And I understand if people are like, I understand why you would be against that and think it's just the good old boys club and all these different things. But I don't know, man, like those guys really want him. And the other part, Garrett, is Europe really doesn't want him. Like they are not excited about JT being at a Ryder Cup. And I think that matters. I'm with you there. Well, you know, we'll see what the the picks are, but pretty sure that those uh, that those spots are going to go to Cameron Young, Brooks Kepka and Justin Thomas. So, uh, you know, it's just a matter of of what we think about that team, how we feel about that team. And there will be plenty of time to discuss it because between now and the Masters next year, uh, <laughs> the Ryder Cup is is sort of what matters here, um, uh, at least in men's golf. So uh, looking forward to it. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I want to point people to the Normal Sport newsletter. This is uh, something you've been doing recently, and you're, I think, experimenting with different release patterns uh, for it, so to speak. <laughs> um, but very enjoyable newsletter. Wanted to let people know about that. Yeah, thank you. Anormalsport.com slash newsletter. Uh, I've enjoyed writing it. It's kind of a look at the amusing, but sometimes deeper parts of golf. And uh, yeah, appreciate you saying that. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced and edited by me this time, actually. <laughs> Matt Ruchis, uh, our usual editor, is in the process of moving, so best of luck to him. If you would like to do something really helpful for the Friday Golf Podcast, I'm not saying you have to be helpful to us. Just listening to the program is all we really ask of you. But if you want to do something a little bit extra, then go and rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. My understanding is that the Apple Podcast Reviews and ratings are especially meaningful for garnering new listeners. So if you're listening to us in that app, then go ahead and quickly rate and review us. Tell us how we're doing. Give us your feedback. And that alone would be super helpful. All right. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back again soon. <laughs>